You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. Hopefully I can croak my way through this. <laughs> First of all, I wanted to say a heartfelt thank you, Val and I both. Um, from a special service uh, yes, yesterday. It was a beautiful uh, confirmation to our own hearts of our love for you and the love that you have given to us. Many of our friends and family who came were just amazed of that support that they saw, even in that f- service of the love and commitment that you have had for, you have for me. And just I promise by God's grace, my loving commitment to lead you guys in the grace of the gospel. I think that's why it's so fitting today to talk about what, what is our motivation and what is even God's motivation in bringing the gospel to us. Last week we talked about what it, what it, that because of this world message of the gospel, we're to be messengers of that gospel. But what motivates us to be that messenger? And what motivated God even to bring about this good news to us? So we're gonna, we're gonna talk a little bit about that. And so these passages that Brian is about to read will give us some clues on what is the proper motivation for us and for God. The first passage comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The next passage comes from John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for our, this time that we can gather around your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just speak, uh, Holy Spirit, through me, and that our hearts would be open, our hearts would be encouraged, our hearts would even be convicted and changed as we think about what is the proper motivation as to live out this gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, before I begin, again, I heard there's gra- congratulations to our youth basketball team. They won both games yesterday. Well done. Yeah, awesome. Good job. We have to get to the game. Brian Chappell, in his book, The Wonder of It All, Rediscovering the Treasures of Faith, shares this story. Follow along as I read this. She took her children to the park to break the monotony of summer days, and instead she broke, she broke her own heart. She watched her children run to the playground equipment as another car drove into the parking lot. The new car came to a quick stop and a young, attractive woman with a beaming smile leaped out of the driver's seat and virtually skipped to a secluded picnic table near the adjourning lake. The imagination of the mother began to race. Who could this attractive young woman be meeting in such a secluded spot with so much enthusiasm? Was this a long-awaited carefully planned rendezvous with an overbusy husband, a lunch date with a best friend, or a terse between secret lovers. The young mother determined to stay on the lookout 
forever got out of the next car. No one, out, no one came out immediately. The mother soon grew preoccupied with her children and forgot to watch the young woman. When she did finally glance again at the secluded woman, what the mother saw made her heart hurt. The woman was reading a Bible. The person she had leapt from the car to meet with such enthusiasm was the Lord. The woman, the mother, recognized with pain that penetrated her spirit that she no longer had that same enthusiasm. Once the excitement of her relationship with the Lord had overwhelmed her, once the joy of her salvation had burned warm and bright, but the fervor was gone. Faith had become dreary duty. God had become a detached, frowning bystander. Something had happened over the years of her walk with the Lord. She did not know what it was, but she did know that she would not be one to skip to meet him. She had lost something wonderful, and she wept there in the park for that loss. Have you ever felt that loss yourself? Do do you know what it means for your worship to seem terribly important but painfully dull? Can you sympathize with those learning more and more about God but caring less and less? We may be still trying to serve God, but you find yourself doing so increasingly with a bowed neck, gritted teeth, and weary resolve. Or do you often feel guilty for your failures and not measuring up to the standard that you think you should measure up to? There is so much to do for the kingdom of God, but for you too, perhaps the duty has become drudgery. God feels distant and your love cold. Can it be different? Can that woman experience the same thing that 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 woman that she saw experience? Is there hope out of this? Well, obviously, yes. The world announcement, the gospel, the good news says absolutely yes. You can love God and his purposes with a burning zeal again. God's work can excite you again. These passages that Brian read in another passage I will read tell us how to rekindle our hearts and our ability to serve in building and proclaiming God's kingdom. It is about understanding the proper motivation. We will see that if it is grace that motivated God to bring the moral message of the gospel, and it is grace that he desires to motivate us to serve and to love him. So this morning, I want us to make grace our motivation. I want us to be about grace and what those things that get in the way of us resting and believing in that grace. I love how one uh, pastor in the 19th century described grace. He used each word. He described it this way, and many of you might have already heard it before, but it's God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. What is he saying? That in the gospel we see the free, unmerited favor of God manifested in providing salvation for us in Jesus Christ, to those who do not deserve it, to those who have not earned it, but he freely, unmerritedly gives us favor through the work and person and work of Christ. So where does grace come from, right? Grace is probably one of the most popular words that we use in the church. But what does it mean? What's so special about it? What makes grace, well, grace? To begin to answer these questions, we need to look deeper into the character of God himself the author of grace. 
It is in him that we find what grace is really all about. See, grace is understood at the intersection of two of God's attributes, God's holiness and God's love. What do I mean by God's holiness? Well, God's holiness describes his majesty. In fact, in John, that passage that Brian read, the glory, right? The purity, the perfection of his nature. Holiness is the essential part of God's nature. His holiness is as necessary as his existence. He only does what is right. He only does what is good. He only does what is holy. His holiness is perfect freedom from evil, all evil. It's absent of any evil in him. God is absolutely free from any moral evil. God always acts consistently with his holy character. And for us as believers, the absolute holiness of God brings comfort and assurance. Why? For since he is perfectly holy, then he can be, we can be confident that his actions towards us are always perfect and just. But because God is holy as well, he can never excuse or overlook any sin we commit, however small it may be. He has a perfect standard. And throughout we see the scriptures, he is calling us to that standard. But we know that we cannot measure up to that standard. We sinned. Sin came into the world centuries ago, and we continue to sin. And yet his holiness demands some actions to deal with it. Which brings us to that other attribute, his love. On one hand, God is holy and just and cannot tolerate or live with or bless evil. On the other hand, God is loving, faithful, and cannot tolerate the loss of people he has committed himself to. And so there's a tremendous, seemingly unresolvable tension in the whole story of redemption in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, right? The tension is very real in the Old Testament. Will God finally give up on his people? But then he would then, but then what of his faithful love? Or will he finally give in to his people? But then what of his holiness? See, it's only on the cross that we understand how God is able to resolve that tension. See, on the cross, our sin was given, imputed to Jesus, so that his righteousness can be given, imputed to us. See, on the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. See, on the cross, God poured out his wrath on his people in the person of his son. He satisfied, what, both justice, because sin was punished, but loving faithfulness since he's now able to accept and forgive us. See, only through the cross can we see God both as the just and the justifier of the, the dust and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is the only way the tension of God's holiness and God's love can be resolved. The only way that God can love us unconditionally is through the cross. So maybe we can define grace in this way. It's God's favor and mercy through Christ to us that we don't deserve. In fact, grace is talked about in the good news, right? Finds its source in the holy, loving character of God. It is God's kindness to us when we deserve judgment. It's that kind of grace that the Apostle John talks about when he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. John says that Jesus was the Word of God, that all glory of the Father is seen through Jesus. In other words, Jesus was the greatest message that God has ever sent and will ever send to humanity. John is claiming that if God had something to say to the world about our dealing with our sin, about receiving eternal life, about being acceptable of God, about finding meaning and purpose, that he wanted to be heard loud and clear, it will be summed up in Jesus. See, Jesus didn't come as a messenger of God drawing a sword and bringing condemnation in his first coming on the world. Instead, Jesus summed up his own mission this way, for God, repeat after me if you know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is a judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, Jesus' message was a message of grace. This is what John identified back in chapter 1. Jesus is full of grace and truth. See, Jesus himself is all that he is and all that he did and all that he continues to do and all that he offers us is God's grace, a gift to undeserving rebels. See, at the cross, again, holiness and love meet. God deals with our sin by placing them on Jesus by taking the punishment and wrath we deserve, and as well, through the cross, we are cleansed and forgiven, and moreover, we receive the holiness of Christ. We today, if you're in Christ, are now acceptable because of the gospel. That does not change for us. Because of holiness, God's holiness and God's love meets, he sees you, if you're in Christ, as perfect in his sight. He's pleased with you because of his son. Nothing can rob him of him being pleased with us if we were in Christ. So we see that God's character was motivated by grace to redeem us. Then what must be our motivation to serve our Savior and King? Romans 12, 1 and 2 helps us here. I'll be focusing on that first part of that passage. But he says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What moves us to live and to present our bodies as living sacrifices? Paul is exhorting us to remember mercy. In fact, God gives us so much to do, right, that we might lose heart. But Paul must have understood that that understood how, how, we, how we might be faced with discouragement. So he proceeds in, in all these serving assignments that we see throughout the scriptures with this exhilarating motiva- ex- exhortation and motivation. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, by the grace of God. Paul wants us to make certain that our hearts and our service to him and to others, so he encourages us with God's grace 
as our motivation than driving us with any other motivation. Listen, Paul could have said, but he didn't, I urge you by the guilt you will assume if you're negligent. Nor did he berate, I appeal to you by the rejection you will face if you fail. He did not use that. No, Paul knew that if we serve God out of guilt, out of obligated duty, out of slavish fear, then our labors for the Lord will not be joyful, will not be strong, and will not be long. We see God's grace in Paul's use of the word mercy. It's mercies, it's plural. It's mercies of mercies. Paul was reminding us as he fleshes out in other parts of Romans and other, other letters that in God's grace, he made a covenant to take away, this, away sins. Once applied to the Jews, but now it applies to all who claim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, God's mercy now applies to many. Mercy multiplied. Can you imagine how one can, can, word can contain so much love and grace? The rich, overflowing, abundant grace is a mercy of mercies. Now think of that. Think of mercy. Now, I want you to think of this. Have you ever experienced something in your childhood so hard, so difficult in your life? Maybe you dealt with a health concern like asthma that you never wanted your children to experience. Yet, your child then has been experiencing that very thing you do not want them to experience. And you wish you could spare them from what they would go through. You would do anything to spare them from the pain and the struggles of a particular illness that you often, that you struggle with in your life or anything else. But think of it this way. Remember another who went through such misery that that it took his breath away. Think of other soldiers, soldiers, Shoulders rolled in suffering against the wood of a cross. Recall the one whose weight hung on nails, so cruel that each breath was torture. He willingly took the agony of our sins deserved, all so his lips pursed with pain could express, Oh, my child, now I will spare you what I go through. Jesus did that for you and for me on the cross. John, in his first letter, encourages us, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Friends, such grace and mercy eclipse all other motivations for our service. His mercy and grace should so fill our will. And in fact, if thankfulness does not move us, if grace does not move us, then do we truly understand who God is and what he has done on our behalf. See, without gratitude for Christ's sacrificial love, our service will become nothing than drudgery, and our God nothing more than than a dissatisfied boss. That is why Paul tells us on the onset, in most all of his letters, to to keep God's grace in view. Remember God's grace. Remember the cross that you received God's grace. Remember the love and the holiness that were meant there that you are now acceptable in his sight because of the grace God has given you in Christ. But what happens for for a lot of us, we forget that grace. And here's the challenge of mercy is how we deal with guilt. See, if we are honest in our journey with God, 
Despite God's overwhelming love and grace and mercy, it can quickly fade away from our view. Other motivations can take our service to God distasteful and destructive all too easily preoccupies us. We begin to focus on reasons to serve God that spoil our view of the cross almost without ever really intending it. In fact, our spiritual health requires us to confess the difficulty we have in keeping grace and mercy fully in view. I have struggled over the years in keeping grace as my motivation in my life and in how I even motivate others in the Christian life. In my counseling and my pastoral ministries, even as a father and a husband, it can be discouraging to witness so many people spiritually empty and discouraged in their Christian life. So many forgetting about God's grace and mercy. But I understand that struggle. Many years ago before Val and I got married, I had experienced spiritual burnout. I did, in all my busyness of doing the many things for God and for others, I forgot the mercy and grace of God. I became tired, I became overwhelmed, I was feeling distant. I found myself beginning to make people feel guilty, guilty for not keeping up with me, but not doing as much as me. I privately resented people for not serving as much as I did. I saw even that guilt at times motivated people more to serve him and was often to use guilt either unintentionally or intentionally. Friends, there is nothing more effective than guilt to get people to obey, to serve the standards of God, yet nothing less efficacious in sanctifying them to God. Make people feel bad enough, fearful enough, guilty enough, you, and you can get them to change. Or they will leave the church and you will not have to worry about them anymore. But we don't want to be ruled by that, right? I don't want to be making you feel bad or fearful or guilty enough because you're not doing what maybe God would want us to do. No, that is not the way to do ministry. My dear friends, nothing is less biblical than motivating believers by the guilt that makes God's love conditional upon human performance. Listen to me. There's nothing less biblical than motivating believers by the guilt that makes God's love conditional upon human performance. Think about it this way. I might be dealing with a marriage couple, married, married couple whose relationship is falling apart due to unfaithfulness. Now, I would even say as you think about even the illustration I'm sharing here, think about how you relate to your children. Think about how you relate to your spouse. Think about how you relate to one another when someone sins, when someone is not um, following the way that God, you would want God, that we feel that God wants us to follow, right? So I'm here with this marriage couple. I would tell them that if they changed their behavior, God would bless them. But as long as they pursued sinful relationships, they could not expect God's love. Now the couple very well may cease their immoral activities with this advice. But later I would see that their lives were not necessarily better. A year or two down the road, the same people were locked into depression, pursuing other addictive behaviors, or were just simply spiritually disinterested. If I did say the above, this is what I'm basically communicating to them. The way we get rid of their guilt before God and ensure his blessing was by changing their behavior. But what does that imply? 
If people expect behavior change to get rid of their guilt, whom are they trusting to take their guilt away? Who are they trusting? Themselves. I'm forcing people to question what action of mine will make me right with God. No wonder if we live in that way, faith, people do not mature in their faith. Their faith was in a way, in, in what they could do is to fix their own situation. Mercy and grace came out of you. This way of looking at change encourages people to look at themselves rather than the cross as a place to erase guilt. You see, when mercy and grace are out of you, people try to earn their acceptance with God and others. They become work righteousness comes into play. We try to become acceptable to God by being good enough. Friends, we cannot be good enough to God's holiness. We cannot. That is why the cross, that's why Jesus came. See, if we try to compensate for the guilt that only Christ can remove, then we will lose, listen, we will lose the capacity to love God and to serve him. God does not want us to punish ourselves to ease our guilt. He has punished his son to cancel our guilt. Do you hear me? He's not calling us to punish ourselves to erase our guilt. He is he punished his son to cancel our guilt. If you're in Christ, hallelujah, and that's right, our guilt has been canceled. God will not build his kingdom on, on our pain because he's building his kingdom on his grace and mercy. Again, hear the good news, the royal announcement of the gospel. Christ alone removes the guilt of our sin and makes us acceptable to God. It is Christ who provides all the spiritual riches we need to serve him. Can we say amen and hallelujah? Now you may ask, does guilt ever play a role among Christians? Yes, but we should be very careful about what function it serves. Hear me clearly. Guilt should drive us to the cross. But grace must lead us from it. Guilt can help us seek Christ, but gratitude should make us serve him. Guilt should lead us to confession until we live in gratitude for his grace and true repentance. Because if, if we don't, then true repentance may never come. In Romans 2, 4, Paul says, the kindness of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God motivates the repentance that truly promotes changed lives. See, the love of Christ constrains and compels us to do his will, to serve him. See, mercy and grace stimulate the gratitude that is the only enduring motivation for effective service. See, gratitude recognizes that love never fades and restores confidence in our relationship with God. He, this is the only source of Christian power. Friends, how can we build the kingdom of God if you're paralyzed, if we're paralyzed with dread, beating down with remorse, burdened with guilt, made miserable and sad? I love how Dr. Chapel encourages in his book, he says this. Listen carefully. God intends to take all your sin, all your guilt, bring it to the foot of the cross, and lay it down. Now stand up, lift up your head, believe that you are free of your guilt, and trust that now you can do whatever he asks with joy because God has released you from your burden. Lasting service comes when we serve God from acceptance and not for acceptance. From acceptance 
not for acceptance. If you're in Christ today, you are 100% acceptable in the sight of God. Nothing can rob you of his love. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Let's get back to the woman at the park. The day after her experience in the park, the young mother mentioned at the onset of this chapter again sought some relief from the summer monotony. She took her children to vacation Bible school. She would soon discover how much her heart was still aching from the revelations of the previous day. When she, did, she went to pick up her children at noon, the program was running a little late. So she sat in her car listening to the voices of the children out the church windows. Their singing and laughter did not lift her spirits. Instead, the children's cheer made her remember the joylessness of her heart, her own walk of faith, and again gripped her. Sadness gripped her. She remembered when Jesus was another word for joy. When folding her hands to pray meant you were talking to God. And when you said, Lord, I'm sorry, you really felt forgiven. The recognition of these things that once filled her heart now only made her feel more empty. Her head fell to the steering wheel and tears again came with a silent sigh of spiritual longing. So quiet was her grief that she could still hear the children's song. The closing exercises of the Bible school was ending, so the children were singing with their marching song, the song that was supposed to take them into the world with zeal for the Lord. When the words penetrated her consciousness, the mother drew, her, drew in her breath with a startled grasp. From a familiar song, the children sang, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing, I will sing, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Sudden realization flooded over the mother like a shock wave from heaven. The words of mercy lifted her head from the wheel. That's it, she thought. That's what I have forgotten. Once she had sung that song with the joy the children now echoed, but somewhere, somewhere, somehow life with its busyness along with the guilt of a thousand failures, the negligence of the 10,000 duties, and the pursuit of a million priorities other than God had taken the, the words from her lips and the truth from her heart. More and more she had performed her duties she could, she could, imagine, she could manage for God's favor and, and out of human dread. Now, in the song of the children, she saw her way back to the warmth she had known, Affirmation of his mercy was a back into his arms and all the joy that was there. She sang with the children a new joy flooded into her heart. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Now there was cause for loving zeal again. Here was new strength. She knew that in view of his, this mercy, she could seek him again, serve him afresh, and love him anew. By mercy, God clasped her heart captured her commitment, and reclaimed her joy. By God's mercy, again, made this woman's sweet service in her heart strong. Friends, such grace God will grant to us, too. As each of us question, what, why do I do what I do? And we answer, because of God's mercy, because of God's grace. Let us pray. Father, your mercies are rich. And we are so thankful 
for the richness of your mercy and of your grace. We thank you that that is what you want us to be motivated by. Lord, that is what motivated you to bring the good news to us. When your children sinned years and years ago, you offered redemption right away. And yet you continue to show us our need of redemption in the person of Christ, in the work of Christ. Father, that is the mercy that we've been given in Christ. Let us sing of that mercy. Let us be renewed by that mercy. Let us be motivated by that mercy and grace. Help us to always keep grace and mercy in view as we live our lives personally and as we live this life corporately together. And may we be about bringing that mercy and that grace to a world who needs to hear it because many people are living in guilt and in fears and yet the good news of the gospel says, no, Jesus has, has dealt with our fears, has dealt with our guilt, has given us this amazing love in the person of Christ, in the work of Christ. Oh Lord, let us sing of mercy. Let us remember mercy. Let us remember grace. May that be a motivator for us. We pray in Jesus' name. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.